Thank you for tuning in. We had another great discussion today, this time with Patrick Verano. He's an organizational development expert and specializes in building effective leaders in teams based on science. We talk about what makes a great culture and really how simple it can be to begin to establish one at any time and at any level in our organization. We get into resiliency, unconscious biases, and how not to be a cop-out when it comes to establishing the type of culture that wins today and over the long term. And finally, we are reminded of the five dysfunctions of a team and the best ways to maximize the results and our ROI in terms of training. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. This is a show where you and I get to talk with industry insiders and subject matter experts on the issues that matter most. So let's go. Today we have Patrick Verano, founder of the Emory Leadership Group, and we'll be talking about how to create a winning culture and build effective teams based on science. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Hey, thank you very much, Peter. I'm really looking forward to this. I know we've had several conversations over it seems like uh, well over a year anyway, in regards to leadership and what that looks like. So to be able to be on your show is a real honor. So thanks for that. Great. And I've enjoyed every one of our interactions. So, well, before we begin, can you share a little bit about yourself and how you got into leadership and organizational development? Sure. Um, so let's see, I started back in 2008 uh, as Emory Leadership Group and the company actually first started off as Achieving Your Apex. And I started the company, I was in the biotech industry for a number of years um, as a sales rep, as a trainer, and was working for a small company that had a buyout. And I took that as an opportunity to do what I really knew that I loved doing, and that was working with other people to help them develop. Uh, so I went as a coach, and one of the things that really drove me on that was that in the work that I was doing or in the organizations that I'd worked for, we would have these great workshops, and we'd always leave at the end, and there was very little follow-through. So even the best of intentions, I'd go to a sales seminar or a leadership seminar, and the material was really good, but there was nobody there to work with after the fact in terms of how do I apply this now? So the packets generally went from my desk to the file cabinet to a box probably. And I thought there's so much more opportunity here that I think coaching could, could add to this if, if people were able to say, how do I apply this now over a period of time? So that's, that's really how I started uh, Emory Leadership Group or, or Achieving Your Apex at that point was around wanting to create environments, whether they were sales or leadership development, which is really what I've honed in on, having the coaching component to, to help right. people put it into practice. 
And that's such a big thing today, the follow through and the execution, because I mean, that's, you know, an idea is great, but the follow through and the execution, and that sort of gets into like organizations want to develop the, the culture of, of execution and the culture of continuous learning. And, and so it's really that culture that sort of drives all the activities. And so that being said, and it's a topic for the discussion today is, you know, whereas culture is such a huge driver for success. I mean, how, how do you define culture? To me, culture is simply the behaviors of the organization, regardless of what we have on our wall that says these are our values or our vision or our mission statement. To me, that's irrelevant if it's not congruent with how we behave. It's our behaviors that make our culture, not what we say our culture is. And that's oftentimes what I find is the disconnect between what we say we are and how we behave are not the same. So from that standpoint, that creates culture too. Probably not the culture we want, but that creates a culture as well. And oftentimes you'll hear about it in terms of disengagement or organizations that are disengaged. Culture, I take a very simple view to it saying we, we create our culture just based on however we behave. Right. And so, I mean, there's this differentiation between, well, there's a great culture over here and a very toxic culture over here. Um, and then, well, you know, we have a, an okay culture. I mean, what are the differentiators? Is it, is it that alignment with what you, what you say and what you aspire to and what you actually do? Uh, or are there other elements that sort of are key attributes to, sort of a great, a toxic, and a so-so culture. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have opinions on, on what makes that kind of culture. And again, I, I tend to try and keep things simple. I think from a, a leadership perspective, we've overcomplicated things, that it's not that difficult. Um, I will often reference a quote that I believe is by John Quincy Adams, but I've heard some some say that they can't find that it is attributed to him. But I, I use this quote that says, if your actions inspire someone to do more, dream more, learn more, or become more, you're a leader. And to me, what I love about that quote is there's nothing in there about a title. That in two years, this is who I can be. It's about actions and inspiration. And to me, I look at that and actions to me are synonymous with behaviors and inspiration is synonymous with influence. So do my behaviors influence somebody else? Wherever I am in the culture, that's really what goes on. It's, it's about behaviors. That's what's going to create. And if we think about it, what, what would be a toxic culture? Probably behave, people have to act in a certain way that creates a toxic culture. And the same thing for a great one. And so-so probably says, you know what? Some of the time we get it right. <laughs> Some of the times we don't get it right. Depends on where we are in the organization. But again, I think it comes back to behaviors. And that's really where I spend the majority of my time. Right. And I, and I want to get into that because I love, you know, how, you know, you talk about and break down creating the behaviors that drive culture. Um, but one of the, the aspects of having a culture, I, I mean, intuitively, it makes sense. You read the Gallup reports. I mean, people want to be part of a culture. They want to be able to grow and develop. I mean, what? Do you have any more scientific data or just facts that if you have a great culture, these are some of the benefits that you enjoy? Well, if you look at, if you look at the data that's out there from Gallup, you certainly see that in a number of different measures, whether it looks at turnover or 
um, absenteeism or quality defects in products or theft within an organization, profitability, earnings per share. There are a number of, of different metrics that they use when they look at what are the what are the highest, the top 25th percentile of engaged organizations and the lowest 25th? And you'll see in there, there's a widespread on all of those measures between the companies that are, are highly engaged and those that are not engaged. And again, I go back to, to me, that's your culture. Do we have a culture that's engaged or not? And if we do, the, the results or the benefits that we receive from that are, are measurable in that regard. All right. And let, let's get, um, and who, where do you think culture starts in an organization? I, I think obviously it needs to be modeled at the top. You can't, you can't have an organization where the president doesn't behave in a way that is in line with what the company's stated values are or its mission statement. That said, I can't, at times, like, so if I go into an organization, I might be working with mid-level managers or directors, and I'll be doing maybe a piece on uh, emotional intelligence or on conflict or on um, productive conflict. And, and I'll often hear somebody say, oh, well, you know who, you know who really should be at this workshop is so-and-so. And I will often stop and say, I, I can't disagree with you. However, that person may never show up to this workshop or be enlightened or get it, so to speak. So you can't rely on that because when it comes right down to it, all we can do is we control ourselves and how we show up. So in that regard, it's, it's to try and provide everybody with a skill set or a, a set of tools that they're able to start to shape culture at whatever level they're at because there is a contagion effect to it. Right. And I, I agree with that. And I see it. I mean, there, there is sort of in, in an atmosphere of, of disengagement or low engagement, there is a little bit of the, well, corporate says this, and, you know, the culture says that and this division does it this way. And I just say, well, listen, you're a project manager or you're a leader at this level. And right now, your behavior, you can create your own little culture that is affects your team and it affects your projects. Uh, and that's what you can control and start there because so, I mean, yes, it starts at leadership, but it starts at your level of leadership. So you take responsibility now and then maybe you can have leverage uh, and influence throughout the organization. But number one, start with you because if you're now, um, you know, not stepping up for yourself, then are you really serving in a leadership capacity? Yeah, exactly. So did this idea of be the change you want to see in the world. Right. And, and don't use, well, so-and-so is not doing it. Or when you start putting excuses on why you don't have to behave in a certain way, that's a cop out. Right. And, and, and if you're going to get the respect um, and ultimately the reverence um, that you want as a leader to be able to make changes, you're going to want to be able to, to, to live that change and to, 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 to create that positive culture. So, let, well, let's get into the behavior because I think that is a driver. And, you know, one of the times we spoke and you spoke about your behavior work um, and, and immediately I said, this is foundational to culture. And you have a, um, a process that you've developed and used and it's, it's got the acronym CABLES. Um, but before, and I'd like to break down, you know, each, each of the, uh, of the letters, but you, describe it in, in a way initially um, as, you know, K 
cables on a bridge. And I think that's perfectly fitting for the, the audience, which is a lot of the, the architecture, engineering, construction space um, that deals with, with cables and bridge cables. Can, can you describe, um, you know, how you look at the cables process? Sure. So in the workshops that I will often do, I'll have a picture of two different bridges up there. One's a rope bridge that for those that can remember Indiana Jones or any of those movies, that rickety old um, rope bridge that broke as soon as he started to cross it. I have that bridge up and then I've got an image of the Golden Gate Bridge next to that. And I will challenge people to think about both of those bridges as relationship bridges, that we cross those all the time. The Golden Gate Bridge that one cable that goes from tower to tower is, I believe, about three feet in diameter. And if you were to do a cross-section on it, I believe it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-five to 30,000 individually wrapped cables. When I look at that, for me, I think of that very much the same way as I think of the relationships that we have in our lives. That the only reason we either have a strong relationship or a, or a weak relationship is based on our behaviors. And just like 30,000 cables individually wrapped make that bridge immensely strong, it's the same thing with us, that if we behave in the right ways, we build a stronger and stronger bridge. And when we don't, we build the bridge that's on the left side that is this rickety old bridge that we have simply taken more than we've given back. And that's what we end up with. And eventually that thing will fall into the water. Whereas the Golden Gate Bridge or any bridge that has this sort of development to it, I could go up to the Golden Gate Bridge and cut a hundred of those cables. Nothing's going to happen to that bridge. It's going to be fine. Will they need to be repaired? Yes. But it's, again, no different than our own relationships. We make mistakes. We do the wrong thing. Sometimes I'm going to act selfishly. I'm going to make a decision that, quite frankly, it was like, that was in my best interest. And, and I recognize that after the fact that, you know what, I really didn't, I didn't take you into, into account on this. I cut a hundred of those cables necessary essentially, in that relationship. The difference is, is that I've done enough things all along the way that there's time to repair that. And that could be as simple as saying, I'm sorry, as long as I'm sincere about it, that those 100 cables are repaired, or maybe 50 of them are, and maybe another 50 are down the road when I continue to behave in a way that is more in line with who I am as an individual over time. And, right. and to it me, it builds in your resiliency as an individual and your resiliency as an organization. You're sort of building that bank of, of relationships um, and, and those behaviors so that, hey, when stuff comes up and it does come up yeah. um, and it hits you out of life field and if you respond in a certain way that's not ideal, well, hey, I learned a lesson, let's move forward. But it is that sort of resiliency built over time, built on these, these behaviors. And there are very few people, unless you're afraid of heights, maybe that you wouldn't feel comfortable crossing that bridge because it's so strong, the golden gate. You just know the integrity of that thing. And I look at it the same way in, in the relationships we have, that sometimes things are going to be rocky. The weather's going to be bad. There are going to be challenges crossing that bridge, but I'm comfortable enough in how I behave that this thing is going to maintain. It's not falling over. It's not going to crumble into the ocean. All right. So let's, let's start at the top and unpack that, the, the, the C in yeah. cables. Um, and I, I think it gets along those lines of what we've already talked about as far as where things stop, but start. Um, but if you could unpack that, starting with the C. Sure. So the C is around congruence. That's the, the first cable, so to speak, in that acronym of cables. And when I have this conversation, I will oftentimes say that 
I have six behaviors here, right? There's, there's an analogy here to a bridge and are there really four behaviors that are most important? Are there maybe eight? I, I don't know, right? We can, we can debate that. I know that these six behaviors in terms of my life and the work that I do, I find that they touch on any challenge that I've had. I find that these either have built a strong foundation for I am or when I haven't behaved in these ways, I've seen the, I've seen the negative effects of it. So um, that's just sort of a little disclaimer on that. But so congruence to me really is just about walking the talk. What I do and what I say, are they in alignment? It's as simple as that. And it's interesting. I just did a podcast the other day, which my podcast is lead like no other. The, the topic of it was around just congruence. And it was based on an article that I had come across an interview with a gentleman named Mike Jensen, who is, uh, he's a professor and I, I, it's, I'm blanking on where he is located right now. I think it was the Rotman School of Business, but it was, in, it was an article, it was in the Harvard Business Review and he talked just about integrity. And what was important about that is he said, there were really two components to integrity. One is integrity is about keeping your word. What I say and following through on it, that's integrity. But there's a second component to this is to say that at times, if you can't keep your word, and there are times when circumstances get in the way that maybe we can't follow through on what we said, is that we try and make amends for that. We try and make that whole what we couldn't. And I do think that is so important in, in organizations, right? We may have a value or, or a direction or a vision that we fall short on. And rather than just let it go as that was our word, we, we made that commitment maybe to our employees. We can't do that, but here's what we are trying to do for our employees to offset whatever negative impact is going to be felt by us not being able to fulfill the first promise that we made. And I really do think that is so important because it helps to continue to, it's like repairing the bridge, right? It's saying, look at, I, I apologize. I realize I can't do what I said I was going to do here, but here's what I'm trying to do to, to offset that or trying to make up for that. Right. So that's and I think it, it lays the groundwork for the authenticity, which is, which is so starving um, in leadership today. Um, and it, like you said, you're walking the talk and right. you're following through. Right. Um, so that, that's that first cable. Um, moving on to the next cable, it's around appreciation. And, and this is the A, obviously, in the cables. There are two components to this. One is the appreciation of the people that I work with. Do I recognize them for what they're doing? And oftentimes, there's this, I think, an old mentality of, well, why do we need to recognize people for what they're getting paid to do? That's just what they're supposed to be doing. And while I agree on some level with that, that's not how we're wired. We like to be recognized for contribution. We just need it on different levels. Some need it a lot, some need it a little. But at some point, we all need some type of validation that, that somebody says, thanks for what you're doing. It's appreciated. Right. And, and that's a major driver for success and engagement today is to, to recognize and reward. Um, and there's even like a generational component of, you know, if, if you're part of the boomer extra generation, maybe you, you don't need it so much. Um, but there's definitely, you know, the, the millennial and, and the Gen Z's, you know, as much as one type of appreciation a day. Um, is something that they need just to understand. Thank you. It's with the culture they were brought up in. It's not their fault. That's how they were raised. Um, but I think, you know, generation aside, um, 
it is a major motivator. I, I think through a lot of the Gallup studies and a lot of the work that I've read, it is a major motivator of performance just to yeah. feel that appreciation. And, and I certainly know, I know plenty of people that are Gen X or boomers that like to be appreciated for what they're doing. You know, I, I do think it's important. Now with that, and in the workshops that I will talk about or, or bring up is to say, it needs to be sincere, right? We can't just have the, everybody gets a star today and it loses its, it loses the value of people feeling as though this thing is sincere. Then it just becomes a manipulation tool. So, which is, that's not what this is about. The other part of this appreciation really is a different spin on this. It's to look at this from a standpoint of all the research that's out there on what are called unconscious biases that oftentimes we almost need to look at each other like we're icebergs, that we only see about 10% of who the person is. And that other 90% is below the surface of maybe who, they're, who they've become based on how they grew up, um, their personality styles, whatever that might be. But if, if we don't take time to appreciate, you know, Peter, that you're different than I am, um, maybe from a personality standpoint that you might be direct, I might be somebody that's more, um, I need a little more time to, to process decisions. If we don't take that into account, it can cause a lot of problems for us in terms of really being able to work well together as a team. Because I take offense to maybe your, your curt behavior on some things, like I just want the answer here. And you get frustrated with me like, oh my God, this guy needs another day to make a decision. Like, let's, let's move. Like, let's just do something here. So that's really important around appreciation. And there's a lot of different components to this around things like confirmation bias. As an example, if somebody were to say, oh, you're going to be meeting with Peter this afternoon and I've never met you before. And somebody says, oh, wait till you meet him. He's a, he's a problem. Always, you know, he's high maintenance, whatever that might be. That in and of itself starts to drive this. And in this case, it's called diagnosis bias that... I start to make an image of who I think you're going to be even before I've met you because somebody else has planted a seed. And we would all argue that we don't do this, but we know the research has been validated ever since the 50s. They've done studies around Pygmalion or diagnosis bias or confirmation bias showing how we fall into these traps. And oftentimes when we do that, we don't allow each other to be at our best. If I think you're not a good performer, then I will treat you oftentimes in a way that that discounts your performance and you'll start to play that out. It almost seems that without being able to practice in a, and appreciate this appreciation behavior, it, it cuts at what so many organizations and leader leaders are trying to do with increasing diversity and inclusion. It seems like a critical piece to appreciate the differences in others um, to be able to attract and have a diverse group of folks on the team and then be able to include them in ways that sort of maximize their potential and maximize the, the potential for the team. Totally. I mean, you need that. Yeah. In terms of. So I, I can see that behavior as being a critical and that, that second element, I think that that's, you know, where, where people feel appreciated, um, not just for their, what they've done, but, but almost who they are. Um, and it's almost like you can then build on those strengths to be able to get them to become, you know, more than who they are today and to really kind of reach higher potentials as the team and, and as a team, as an organization. And if you think about it this way, if, if I, if I don't like who you are, for whatever reason, 
I come to the meeting looking for those things that validate why I don't like you, whether I want to do that or not. The other approach that I would, would often challenge people is to say, next time you're around that person, think of something that you do appreciate about them. Just find one thing that you, you think, I, this is something that I do respect about this person. And my guess is once you are able to start doing that, you find out that maybe there's another thing that you like about them. But you have to shift how you approach the person. So I don't come to you looking at you, what don't I like about you? It forces me to find what is it about Peter that I do like? What is, what is something that I can respect about you? And as, as much as we may want to think we're right, that there's nothing good about you, there's some good things there. I just haven't given myself the chance to find them. It almost seems freeing as the leader or as the person going into the meeting to always look for the positive. I mean, I think we're, we're run down a lot and to be able to have that behavior set in that I'm going to go into this situation and I'm going to look for the positive in yeah. people. And it, it, it's, 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 it's freeing. And I can see how that would be, you know, aspiring for others. Yeah. So it, to me, it plays into expectation. It, and we know the power of expectation. And I'm not one that is like, well, you just think happy thoughts and things work out. That's not what I'm talking about here. But I do know that if I don't expect things to work out, then my, my level of being able to look for um, solutions or how they will work out are going to be are just going to be reduced because I'm in a place where I've already expected like this is not going to work. So I close off a lot of opportunity for me to, to want to think, okay, there's a way that this is, this can work. And, and that's what I'm going to find. Yeah. And it's an abundance mentality. It's a strengths mentality. And so, so the behavior, okay, you, you walk in the talk, you're congruent, uh, you're appreciating, you're really building on strengths. You're looking for the best out of situations. So then we get to be, Right. So the B is being for others. And one of the, the components to this, or one of the things that I will talk about now, and I heard this on a different podcast, it was by a guy, Gary Vaynerchuk, who would always say 51%, the 51% rule, that if I go into any relationship that I'm trying to provide 51% of the value to that relationship, then I'm giving just a little bit more than I'm expecting to receive. And again, I had been the being for others for me has been around for longer than I knew about 51%. But I think what I like about the 51% on this is that it just makes it very easy to visually understand what am I supposed to do? And when we're for others and not about ourselves first, what we know that activates from an influence standpoint is reciprocity. And we can all think of those situations that if we've done something or somebody has done something for us, naturally, what do we want to do? We want to do something back for them. I think it was, um, was it Earl Nightingale or it might have been um, Zig Ziglar that said, if you help enough other people get what they want, you'll get everything you want. Help enough other people get what they want and you'll get everything you want. And I truly believe that, that when we put ourselves in, in second place in a way, if we're out there saying, how can I serve? How can I contribute? and that's our first, then everything else falls into place. I know for me now, when, when I go out and speak to a group, before it was, oh, is the message going to be good? Is my delivery going to be good? And I was missing what I was there to do, that it's not about me. It's about them. It's about the audience and who's there. 
and trying to make sure that I deliver something that they can walk away and use. It's not about me. It's about them. And that takes the pressure off of me to be focused on what's, what do I look like? How am I doing? It's not about me. It's about, right. it's about them. And that taps into the, you know, the, there's the, the movement of servant leadership, which is really kind of what we're wired to do anyway. We're, we're wired to serve others. I mean, we feel good. It's better to give than receive. I mean, these are just things that are wired into us that, you know, we were taught to do something different and look for the sale. And, you know, and now it's, it's coming back a little bit. Um, and being for others is not only good for us and those we're serving, but it's probably good for us and our organization in the long term. Because yeah. it is that behavior that gets reciprocated. Right. And again, the only challenge is, is that when people use this in a sense of, I'm just going to give something because I know I need to ask something bigger down the road, that generally is uncovered, right? We, we, those people become exposed as they're manipulating the situation, right? The only reason they're doing something for you is because they need something in return. Like it's right. that person that you're like, wait a minute, I haven't heard from this person in a year. They're not just calling to check in on me. There's something that they want. Doesn't work. It's like LinkedIn today. You'll get a request and two hours later, somebody wants to sell you something that it's not about me. It's about them. And that's a turnoff. We don't like that generally. Right. And if we're in an organization and teams need to help each other and we want, you know, uh, to be agile and to collaborate, I mean, we, we need everybody serving, you know, each one just a little bit more because sometimes you, there's gray areas and it really, it, it allows that camaraderie to happen and for teams and organizations to be effective. Yeah. And I, who am I more likely to help out? Somebody that has always been on the standpoint of uh, how little can I do? And now I really need something or is it the person that's, that's just constantly out there saying, what else do you need? How else can I help? Or what, what can I provide for you? Right. And if, if you're a leader um, at even a, a mid or a higher level, if, if you've modeled that for your team um, and been able to do it from a very authentic, right. you know, from a place and, and you, you do have that congruence and you have appreciated them. And now, and now you're, you're being for them. I mean, that, that's just setting up the model, which I think is, is then setting the culture and, yeah. and allowing things to move forward. And, and you've done it in, in how, what you can control. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. Um, so you want to move on? Let's move on to L. All right. So we got listening is next. And this is like four-wheel drive listening. So there are four different components of this. So one is we listen with our ears, right? What do people say? What are the words that they use? I think oftentimes we can overlook words, but they can be very powerful. I've once heard somebody say words, words have weight. Words have weight. And I truly believe that. I mean, that, that the words we use can, can say a lot or can be misunderstood if we don't clarify them. But tone of voice is also important. Um, and maybe listening as well for what isn't said is, a, is another part of listening. So then we move on to listening with our eyes, and that's body language. Um, what, are, what are people doing with their hands or with their feet or their facial expressions? I interviewed a woman, Susan Ibbets, who runs a company called Human Behavior Lab, and she's a profiler. So she looks for micro expressions on people, facial expressions, and she says that our bodies really tell a great deal about how we communicate. And oftentimes there are things that we can't control. It's the autonomic system that we may say something, right? You've heard somebody say, I'm not angry. 
And you can tell looking at them, right, that this person is clearly angry. It's that we can't control certain things. They bleed out of us in a way. So the better we can understand to listen with our eyes, then the more likely we're going to understand what's really going on. The next two, I think, can be more difficult. One is listening with the mind, and that's around a pause. And that's asking myself the question, what else might this mean? This person just said something. Is it really what they meant? Maybe not. And you know what, Peter, maybe I'm going to ask you first before I just attack you and say, Peter, you know, you said something. I'm just curious. Is this what you meant? Or I'm not going to just assume that I think you meant something. Maybe I'm going to clarify that. That's it's, it's such an important thing for a leader as you're building relationships with people and really want to get down to the, you know, we're trying to accomplish something together. You have goals. I have goals. Our organization has goals to be able to hear people want to be heard. People might not be able to articulate the question. And if you're really actively listening, you know, what I have on my mind is some, a, a personal thing that's going on. And it's really, I, I want to do a good job, but I've got this thing going on. And, and by listening, you can really help somebody and, and provide the, the resources that they need, but then also just clarify expectations and, and, and what we're looking for and what they're looking for. So I think the listening is key. And, you know, as we're, you know, these different levels, the four wheels, you know, I, I look at it again from a developing a culture perspective and leading a team by a leader or a manager doing that, you're setting the example and you're starting the model because it might be the sixth or seventh interaction of, of someone um, watching you listen and how you listen and the questions and the clients. It's going to become nature for them to do it with, with their folks and their clients. Right. right. Um, and so then, and I'll swing back around to that, I think, especially after the last part of listening is around listening with the heart. And to me, you can look at this in terms of, of empathic listening, but it really is to say, if, if I was being listened to, how would I want that to look? How would I want somebody, if I was the one that was talking, how would I want them to listen to me? Really, how would I want them to listen to me? And to take that same approach. And uh, I teach a conflict management class right now, um, up at or a workshop that I do, and I've been doing it for almost a year now for different groups at a, a shipbuilder up here. And I often will say that I start out with the cables model as part of that conflict workshop, but I would say listening to me is a superpower. And what I mean by that is that if if I am really strong at listening on all four of those approaches, then oftentimes I can resolve conflict much faster. Because if I'm really listening, if I'm, I'm picking up on cues, and also there's just a sense of, right, when you know somebody's really listening to you, it has a different feel to it, right? Or if it just the same as if I feel like somebody's really not listening to, to my challenge or the problem or the frustration that I'm having, what do I tend to do? I maybe act out more, I become more resistant to coming to a solution because I feel like, you know what, you have not listened to how this has impacted me. You've only been consumed or considering what it means to you. So I shut down. I'm not going to go there. Listening to me, it's, I think, probably one of the most difficult, but it provides so much power when we're really able to do it. Really listening, but it requires pausing. It requires pausing. 
and if done well, it, it allows someone who might be disengaged to sort of open up a little bit and feel like you care. Right. You, know, you, you care enough that, well, maybe I will open up now. And it's something that, you know, it, and it might not happen the first time, but let's have the real discussion. Let's not talk about, you know, this or that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about some other issue. I'm not going to get to the root issue. I'm not going to tell you what's really affecting the team um, because you're not quite listening. And that doesn't mean that to me, I'm interpreting that as, as you don't care. And we're just not going to resolve it. So I'm going to yeah. stay disengaged. Yeah. Or think about it, Peter, maybe if I said to you, you know what, Peter, after what you just said to me, I can understand why you'd be frustrated. When I say that to you, does that make you more defensive or more willing to sort of open up? When I've said, I, I can understand why you'd be frustrated. Listening to what you just said to me, I can understand why that might be frustrating. Right. Well, you've heard me. You understand that I'm frustrated. Right. But you're going one step further because, you know, let me connect a dot for you or let me give you another perspective on it. And, and I think people, you know, most people will want that other perspective. And right. it's like, okay, you, you heard where I, you heard what I said and where I'm coming from. And maybe you understand a piece of it, but there, because you listened and because I feel like you're trying to help me, maybe there's something I can learn. So let's keep yeah. the conversation going. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, so then when we move on from there, it sort of transitions right into straight up empathy. This, this behavior of really trying to put myself in somebody else's shoes. Where were they? Um, or was I ever where they are now? And what did it feel like when I was there? I think we really need to, to demonstrate that more regularly with other people. And when we do that, when we can really sit there and say, oh, you know what? I was there at one point. I remember what that was like, as opposed to just passing judgment on somebody like, oh my God, I can't believe they'd do that. Well, chances are I was probably there too. So um, taking that a little deeper is really important of trying to really be empathetic to where somebody else is. It's not much more to that in terms of drawing that thing out. I think it's just about really trying to walk in somebody else's shoes. What, what might it be like to be where they are right now? And it establishes that common ground. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just another platform, I think, to, to build um, the type of communication and trust um, that allows, again, teams to thrive and ultimately, you know, teams translating into organizations that, yeah. that care enough to really understand where people are coming from um, and be able to sort of put themselves in their shoes. Uh, it's interesting, you know, because if, we're, if we think about the, these five behaviors that we've talked about so far, there probably could be some people out there that maybe think this seems a little woo-woo. Um, this, this seems like a coddle model, so to speak, as opposed to where, where's, the, where's the strength here? You know, how do you hold people accountable? And to me, I think that's this last behavior is around specifics. It's around clear expectations. That if we set clear expectations with each other, what do we need from each other? And then we hold each other accountable to those things. We often find that the challenges that we run into, I oftentimes will resolve themselves. If you think about each one of these, because if we have clear expectations right in the beginning, we both agree, this is what we're going to do. This is how with our follow through um, we're congruent in terms of our actions on what we said we were going to do, right? Our integrity is there. Um, we're appreciating each other's sort of perspectives and backgrounds and we're, we're trying to give more than we get and we're listening. 
where does conflict come in there? To me, it almost becomes self-regulating at this point where my behaviors all along the way allow me to create an environment where conflict, we may have strong or, or some disagreements along the way, but it's, it's almost one of these that they're, it's malleable, they're workable because we're doing all these other things along the way. Well, it gets into the, you know, performers um, and employees, they don't want a boss today. They don't want someone telling what to do. They want a coach and they want a routine conversation because people want to be able to have yeah. some level of autonomy, but they want to be coached and they want to be mentored. And so, you know, <clears throat> breaking down these behaviors is, is a way that aligns with what people want today. Yeah. Uh, it's like r- rules without a relationship, you know, is what rebellion, you know, I don't remember who says that, but I remember when I, when I heard it, it, it re- uh, um, I, I related to that and it, and it resonated, but but people want the conversations today and they want to be coached. And I think from an organization, it's setting culture and maintaining culture. You know, I think it's those routine conversations that are going to do it. Um, But again, people want to perform on the job. They want to achieve the outputs and the outcomes. And so expectations are going to be set. And I think people, you know, employees want expectations and they want to be held accountable because they're ultimately going to want, you know, the, the, the rewards for that also. Right. And, and I would say just to stress that they're clear expectations, right? There's a decisiveness here that again, as part of leadership is we want people that are able to sort of be, right? I want people that are be decisive that are when push comes to shove, we're not wishy-washy on stuff. This is, this is the direction and we get people to buy in again, we're back to actions and inspiration on this. And to me, that's where this is a checks and balances to this model. And what I will challenge myself to do and those that I work with is say, we'll do case studies to say, let's take a look at these and by behavior, break this thing down. Where, where are the, the challenges or maybe the root causes of this conflict? Which behavior was probably not being modeled as well as it could that creates the environment we're in? And I've yet to go through a challenge that I've run into in an organization that I can't apply cables to and say that there's somewhere along the way, I need to take ownership for this. There's part of this that I own. Maybe I haven't set clear expectations or maybe I haven't been congruent in terms of what my expectations are, or I haven't appreciated other people. So it's almost a self-awareness and a self-assessment. Okay. There, there's an issue going on in my team and I, I want to get into, I know you're certified in um, Patrick Lincioni's um, five dysfunctions of a team. I want to get into that, but, but yeah. say, you know, there's a defined, we probably have to be reminded about what, what those dysfunctions are, but, but if there's something going on in the organization, um, corporate's not going to solve that for me. It's going to, we need another board meeting to talk about this and it probably will get table, but right now I need a solution. Any leader, any manager can say, I need to look at my behaviors. And by following that cables process, they can just start today um, and look at themselves and then have those conversations with the, the, the key contributors or the key people involved and be able to sort of cut to the root issue and start establishing a new behavior in what they can control. Yeah. And it's not always easy, right? I mean, this is clearly something that I, I will tell you, isn't it nice when we can look and say, it's not my fault, it's your fault. You're the problem here, not me. If that's the way we go, and I've been there many times, and I know it hasn't worked out when I've had that approach to it overall, is to look at this and say, first, I need to say, what do I own here? Which part of this do I own? Not what aren't you doing on this list? What am I not doing? 
and start from there. Because that's the only way it's, it's going to improve itself. I own something on that list, if not more than one. And when I, when I speak to this, I will say at the end of this, that you're the architect, the engineer, and the builder to the relationship bridges that you built. That's essentially what we've built here is a relationship bridge. You decide its strength. And that's all based on your behaviors. Right. How are you modeling these things? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and your, your awareness to know where you stand and the fact that you're doing the best you can and where some of the gaps are. Right. And the courage, right. The courage to be vulnerable, to say, you know what? I screwed up my bad. This is my fault. To me, that goes back to integrity of, I can't keep my word, but I'm, I'm going to make damn sure that I find a way to, to make amends for that. Right. What, what are, uh, other than a, a leader or a manager who's involved with some dysfunction right now, um, sort of a, a applying the cables process, um, what are some of the, the what, what are the five dysfunctions that, that you see and, and how, do you, how do you see them best being applied um, in order to sort of right the ship and then just create the culture moving forward? Yeah. Uh, so the five dysfunctions of, or the five dysfunctions of a team is a, is a book that was written by Pat Lencioni. He's a Wiley author. Wiley also uh, administers the DISC assessments. And since, since Lencioni is a, is a Wiley author, what they did was they created a model called the five behaviors of a cohesive team that involves participants on that team taking an assessment based on where their team is on these five dysfunctions but also doing a personality test as well or an assessment so that they are able to identify where do I come from? What, how do I operate? And when we can start to do that as a team, start to almost see the, the infrastructure of each other, how we naturally operate. It helps us to take each other less um, personally in a way. Uh, we get less offended when we just understand like that's, that's your natural default. Now that's not to make excuses for somebody to say, well, oh, I'm a, I'm a direct person and you're just going to have to put up with me, love it or leave the baby. That's who I am. That's not what this says, but you need to identify that at first. So when we talk about the five dysfunctions, the five dysfunctions are lack of trust is the first one or absence of trust. And that really is an environment where people don't feel as though they can say what they want to say. Either I'm afraid I'm going to be retaliated against. Maybe I'll be ridiculed for it, embarrassed, or maybe I, I make contributions and I'm ignored. Nothing is ever acknowledged that I say. That builds a lack of trust too. So if we don't have trust, then we, we have an absence of conflict, real conflict. And we need conflict within organizations. The challenge is, is that we're oftentimes aggressive on each other and not on the issues. Right? We're, we take it personally. But if we don't have, if we don't have trust that we can say what needs to be said here in a way that, that is productive, we're not going to have conflict. We will sort of maybe go along with stuff, but I'm not, I'm not really going to get into this because I don't feel as though I can say what I want to say. So if we, if we don't have that, we go to the third dysfunction, which is lack of commitment, which basically says, I'll go along with this because it's a safer thing to do, but I'm not, I never had an opportunity to really um, weigh in on this, but I'll go along with it because it's not worth it to me. So then the next dysfunction is lack of accountability within the team, meaning that if you and I agreed to go in a certain direction, but I didn't really buy into this in the first place because I didn't feel like I could trust to say anything, then if I don't see you doing what you're supposed to do in two weeks, I'm not going to call you out on it. I'm not going to come to you and say, hey, Peter, 
you know, we agreed two weeks ago that we were going to do this and I don't see you doing that right now because I haven't bought into it. And that, it, for me, it's probably not safe to do that. I think the only thing I don't, I, I struggle with at times when we hear the word accountability, to me, it sounds punitive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the person's going to be held accountable. I think we need to look at accountability as though it's ownership, that we all take ownership and where we're going to go. And that has a much more positive sense to it where we own this and we have a right to call each other out on that to make sure that we're all continuing to take ownership of this. But when we don't have that accountability or ownership, then we have a lack of results. Meaning I'm going to focus on just myself. I'm going to show up. I'll do my job during my shift. Um, I'll take care of maybe just my team, but I don't care about anything else that's going on here. All this other drama and this other department that needs me, I don't care. I'm not going to worry about it. But when we don't take into consideration the, re- the, the, the greater good of the organization, we're not going to be a great organization. Which if we're not engaged, if, if we're not engaged with yeah. our supervisor, if we're not engaged with our peers, yeah. you know, we, we, we're really not looking out for the organization's no. best. So it, it really does come down to engagement and having shared mission and vision um, and having the shared behavior. I mean, and that, that gets into the communications. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> I, I can see that as a, as a dysfunction. It, it, we're not on the same page. So right. why would we hold each other accountable? So if you think about it, we're back to cables again. Mm-hmm. When we talk about lack of trust, because where does trust come from? It's from behaviors. And if you just said mission, vision, values, if we're not following those, then what? We're not congruent. We're back to our first behavior, walk in the talk from an organizational standpoint. We're not there. So there's not going to be trust. We're not going to get there. If I feel like I'm on a team where I'm doing all the work, I don't trust that the people around me are going to pull their own weight. I'm not being for, or they're not being for others. They all come back into play to, cr- to create a, a level of trust that builds on a team that will be at its maximum potential. Right. And even, even if things are going well on, on, a, on a team and, and the mission, vision, and values line up and the cables is being processed, if there's still something going on where, where, where someone's not pulling their weight, well, maybe they don't want to be there. I mean, and this is a way to sort of flush out that, hey, everything, I'm aware enough to know everything is in alignment. It's not perfect, but we're running, you know, on a roll. I mean, we're running, you know, 80, 90%, right? This person just clearly doesn't want to be here. These two people, there's something else going on. You sort of can identify yeah. and isolate them. Right. So, but, but being aware of that dysfunction and seeing it and, you know, wow, there's not 10 things going wrong. It might be just these two. It could be these two people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that just their lack of alignment with what we're doing here. So let's, you know, go down a different path. Yeah. I mean, when I go in and do these workshops and they're full day workshops that I'll do around the five behaviors of a cohesive team where they'll, the group will take an assessment. I'm, I've actually got two in two weeks, sort of back to back with different organizations but I will do a 15 minute uh, interview with each of the participants first, just to help them understand what they can expect from the process, get an understanding of what their thoughts are around this and, and really to start getting them to think about buying into this. Because if somebody is, is completely against this kind of approach or they're like, I don't, I don't want to do anything of this, then it's probably not going to work. Right. Well, let's get into Let's finalize and get, um, through the, 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 the last two um, aspects of, of a functioning team, because I do want to get into before we close some of the ideal ways to train teams. There's a lot, you know, we'll get yeah. into to training and development, which is a big aspect, but let's talk a little bit about more the teams and, and, the, and the functionality of teams. Um, so 
Well, we've gone through cables, right? So we've hit each of those behaviors and we've talked about how dysfunction can show itself in regards to those teams. And those really are the two things that, that I will often use in regards to one is assessing where are we on this um, pyramid from a, from a cohesive team level or a dysfunction level, and then how do the behaviors come into play? All right. Are, are, so, there, are there more of the dif- dysfunctions of the team? that we should share? Uh, no. So, well, we went through each of those levels, right? We started out with lack of trust. Then we went to um, lack of conflict. Then we go to lack of commitment. Then we go to lack of uh, accountability. And we end at the, at the pinnacle of this with lack of results or lack of attention to results. Right. Right. Which is important. And again, as, as a manager and as a leader, I mean, we're, we're responsible for results. So, so ultimately it's like the numbers don't lie. Um, I mean, you'd be held accountable for, for the results. Yeah. And what is important here is to say, not focusing on just the results of what's in my best interest. It's what's in the best interest of this organization as a whole. That, that's really what that means. It's to say it goes beyond just thinking about what's in it for me or my team. What's in the best interest of the organization? And I, I will, I'll say one other thing as you, as you think about these five dysfunctions, or if you think about cables, it doesn't have to be at work where these are applicable. You can have the same dysfunctions at home, lack of trust. I can't say what I want to say because somebody's going to say, oh, you always blow this out of proportion. You're always overreacting. Well, what happens when, when, I bring up a concern and you blow me, you know, you basically blow me off on that and say, it's not, not a big deal. Do I want to keep bringing it up? No, because I feel like I'm, there's no respect here. So if that's the case, we're not really going to have a conflict because I can't have any discussions like that with you because I can't trust that you'll respect that I've got an opinion on this too. So in that case, I'll go along with wherever we go just because it's easier to do. And if I don't see you not following through, I won't really hold you accountable because it's like, why? Why do I want to put myself into that position? And then lastly, from a result standpoint, I'm going to find a room in the house where I can just go be by myself because that's, that's all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to self-preserve right now. Right. And well, it gets into the, the integration of, of, of work and life and um, the fact that, you know, being good at business is being good about people. I mean, and, and it's like in, in order to achieve business success, we need to be able to know and lead ourselves. Um, and, and, and it really just translates. I mean, especially today where we're just so, so busy with tactics and strategies that we're really losing sight of, of who we are and what motivates us. And, you know, the fact that, you know, what motivates me today uh, is different one than what motivated me before because I've yeah. evolved in certain senses. And it, it's, it's that awareness, um, not only of yourself, but then awareness of your team. Right. We're, we're a leader. When you talk about tactics and strategies, or if it's an organization, it's software or a new model, that oftentimes those are cognitive approaches to non-cognitive problems. And what I mean by that is that the non-cognitive problems are around behaviors, emotions, that we, we try and put together a new system in place, uh, maybe a new certification on lean that's going to take care of this issue when really it's about behaviors. It's the non-cognitive stuff that's creating the environment. 
and we're trying to solve it with cognitive solutions. It won't so work. If into, so if there's a training um, to do, and there's a lot of training on, on <laughs> professional development and, um, you know, the, the, the new widget that came out, how effective is training or there's change management? I mean, if there's these sort of behavioral, cultural items that haven't been addressed, I mean, can training truly be effective or yeah. does training, how would you design training knowing that there's probably some level of dysfunction yeah. in any team? Um, I guess what, what is the best way to train today to bring right. in these sort of non-cognitive and cognitive elements? Is there, is yeah. there an art it's, to that that we should be aware of? It's a great question. And I would, I would compare this to reading about exercise and doing exercise. Oftentimes, when we just go to workshops, we read about exercises. And I think intellectually, all of us would understand that if, if we were reading an article on push-ups and how if we do push-ups, this is the muscle we develop and we get stronger. I don't think anybody would argue the fact that if I, if I do those push-ups continuously on this schedule, I'm going to get stronger. That's where it oftentimes ends, is that we don't actually go out and do the push-ups. And to me, that is, that, there's a process to it. It's a, it's a habit that you're building to, to change wherever you are, either to modify what you were doing before or start a new habit. That takes time. That takes doing. And to me, that's where the work that I do is not just to come in and do, I'm going to do a, a rah-rah quick one day and then you're on your own. There's follow through or follow up on it to say, two weeks from now, four weeks from now, six weeks from now, how are we doing? How are we actually able to apply what we talked about in those, in those workshops? That's the only place this changes is when we start to actually try this thing on and see how does this really work, right? Not just in theory, what was up on the slides or maybe in a case study that we did, but how does, how do I really do this? And it's going to be painful, right? There are going to be times that you're going to do this and it's not going to feel really good. Just like going out for a run and you say, I'm not doing that again. I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm sore, but I know that if I were to, if I work through that, I'm going to get stronger. So it almost seems like training design for organizations, training and development, really the, the one time might be effective, may not be effective. Um, it's hit or miss depending on what's going on that day. Um, but if the design of the training and development has behavioral elements, it has culture setting behavioral elements associated with it, true engagement, relationship building, and happens over time, it sounds like that would be the better approach. But that's the, that it can only happen over time. We, I think we've, as a society, have become too quick to what's the quick fix, right? So if you think about it based on the model of the five dysfunctions, it's, people want to focus on just results. We need results. What are you going to do? How are you going to come in here and just change results? And it's the same thing if you were to put that pyramid up on its point, which is where results is and say, okay, let's focus on that first. You would all know that can't stand on its point. It's going to fall over because it has no base to it. That's the same thing with this work. If you just focus on the top on let's get the quick fix It'll work for a little bit, but you're not going to really address the issue. It needs a solid base, and that's behaviors. And once you get those down, everything else becomes a lot easier. But that takes time. 
Um, one of the slides that I will often put up at the end is, is a group of marshmallows. And the title of it is called Grit. And I will talk about this in the sense of there's a researcher out there, his name's Walter Michel. And he wrote a book called the, the Marshmallow, or he wrote a book called The Marshmallow Test. And he was involved in research back in 1975, where that's what they did was they gave, um, they put kids in a room, five-year-olds with an instructor, and the room was being videoed and they had a, a plate on the table and it could have been a marshmallow, it could have been a piece of candy or a cookie. The instructor says, if I leave the room and that's still here when I get back in 15 minutes, you're going to get two of them. So the instructor leaves, the kids are being videoed and you're watching some of these kids will pick it up and they imagine that they're eating it, but they're really not touching it. Um, other kids go into the corner and they hide so that they don't see the marshmallow. And some kids obviously eat it. These kids were followed for the next 40 years and asked a, um, a series of a, um, sort of check-in questionnaires around um, level of school, grades in school, um, life satisfaction, income levels, divorce rates, a number of measures. And I'm, I, I don't have all of them. But what was observed in that was that the kids that did not eat the marshmallow tended to score higher in each of those measures than the kids that did eat the marshmallow. And when they tried to sort of uncover what was it about not eating the marshmallow, the wide ranging agreement on this was that it was delayed gratification. Children that were able to delay gratification tended to do better. And I don't think that's any different than within organizations. We don't delay gratification enough that we're too quick to let's jump to what's the next um, flavor of the month we can do to get people motivated here. We don't give stuff enough time to take seed. We want to eat the marshmallow immediately rather than think, let's just wait a little longer because if we, if we ride this thing out, we're, we're going to get much more than just this one marshmallow. Right. That's well, what I, this process is about. And it gets into, you know, business growth and profits and a thriving culture. those are not inputs, activities, or outputs. Those are outcomes. And and, and they only happen over time. We need more profit. Well, that's only going to be a series of things over time that work well together and that produce the profit. The same thing with organizational growth, particularly organically. I mean, you can short cycle that a little bit by doing M&A and you're probably paying a little bit more. Um, If you sell yourself, you're probably getting less value. But but organic growth, it takes time and it's an outcome um, but I, th- I think you're right. It's that delayed gratification of leaders. So, but we're, we're, in order to have that culture, we're going to have to do the, you know, our inputs are going to have to be this, our activities, we're going to have to model this type of behavior. That's the activity. Uh, the outputs are going to be, we're going to produce value. We're going to coach, we're going to do this. Um, but ultimately it is that delayed gratification. I mean, hopefully we can see progress this quarter. We can see progress this year, but it is that it's, it's yeah. the ability to understand what an outcome is. Um, and be able to wait for that um, yeah. and inspire people to wait for that too because, yeah. because there's benefits in it. It's, it's, that's the ultimate mission and vision. Um, I do a workshop for high school kids. Um, and as part of this workshop, I created an acronym called Living on the Edge. Living on the Edge. So it's E-D-G-N-E. And I talk about this in the standpoint of saying, this is to me where success is. So first off, it's expectation. I need to expect that wherever I want to go, I can get there. And I don't mean this in this think positive thoughts and everything works out and I get to sit on the couch the whole time. That's where the D comes in. 
That's about discipline that I need to first expect it in my mind. And what I mean by that is don't talk myself out of, oh, you're not smart enough. You're not tall enough. You don't have the right resources. You'll never get there. It's to really expect to get there. But then the D comes into play and that's the discipline, meaning I've got to I've got to put the work in. I've got to set the goals. I've got to do the exercises, whatever it is. I've got to do it. But then the next part is really critical too. And that's around, I've got to be grateful for where I am, right? I've got to be grateful for where I am today. And that's a dance, right? Between expecting that I, I want to get more, but also being happy with where I am, who I am as an individual, not chasing somebody else's dream or the bigger boat or the bigger house, I can certainly look to those things and use those as a motivator if I say I aspire to that, but it doesn't diminish me in terms of thinking of my own worth and who I am. And the last part of this is what I call empathy on this, but it's about, again, being for others, having a purpose for somebody else besides myself. That if I'm able to do those things, expect the best, put in the work, be grateful for where I am and think of others, that's a great that's a great success right there. Well, and, you, yeah. and you're living on the, on the tip of, of Maslow's hierarchy, right? You, you're, it's that self-awareness. Yeah. And you're moving into transcendence where you're really looking. It, it's part of an intrinsic motivator. You're not just extra, extrinsically motivated. It's an internal motivator to really serve others. Um, and it's the same thing from a work perspective. You're not only personally aware, you're organizationally aware and you want to have impact and really help others progress up the corporate ladder. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's culture starts. I mean, to um, culture is going to start with a leader at whatever level um, and it's going to be dictated by behaviors. And I think the behavior is going to be a, a, a positive influence if it's, if it's, if it's foundational um, to, self-awareness and really wanting others to thrive and the organization to thrive long-term. I mean, I think, yeah. I think you're coming back to what you said at the beginning, yeah. we, we, maybe we're overcomplicating culture. <laughs> totally. um, it just comes down to re really being aware of, of, of where we are and what we want truly and bringing others along to a place that is inspirational to us and it's inspirational to them. Yeah. I think they're timeless behaviors, whether I'm a, whatever generation I'm from, I think they're, they're timeless foundational behaviors. Right. Well, it's humans, right? I mean, yeah. they, a lot of, again, totally. good business is about people totally. um, and really serving those people. So it, it, any, um, anything else you'd like to share as we close? No, I, I've really enjoyed this. This has been, I think there's so much need for this as well. As, as you know, we've had many of these conversations. A lot of my models, the things that I do are lead like no other is a series that I do for the leadership, a team like no other, um, succeed like no other. They're, they're intentional that they're like no others because I think we've, we've chased the same things for so long. And oftentimes it's been around what's a tactic um, or a system that I can put in place. But if we don't have the foundation be underneath that of the behaviors from a leadership standpoint, if I don't know myself and spend a lot of time understanding that first, I can't lead anybody else like no other. So that's really the, 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 the challenge to this is to think about it like no other.
right? And, and as, a, as, a, as a technically focused, technically centric person for the vast majority of my career and folks that I work with and, you know, not just the engineering architecture space, but in, you know, whether it be in the law space uh, with physicians, I mean, we're technically or financial centric that sometimes just to have a conversation and to think about things from a human perspective and a human development and how that drives organizational behavior, I think is just, it, it's so refreshing and it can only be helpful because 90% of our world, 90% of our day is all based on our technical needs um, and the day-to-day and the urgent. So um, I think this is this has been great. I truly appreciate your time and we could keep talking and I yeah, enjoy this. one of our conversations. Um, how, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about you know, what you do in, in your programs? Yeah, so pretty much all the normal channels, right? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Coach Patrick V on Twitter. So Coach Patrick V. Uh, the same thing on Instagram. I'm Coach Patrick V. Um, my website is Emory Leadership Group, and that's Emory with an E-M-E-R-Y Leadership Group. And uh, you can listen to the podcast that I have as well called Lead Like No Other. Those Which are I love. The ways I, to get. Yeah, thank I, you. I love your podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, and, and I love this. I'm, I'm always up for, for people hitting me up for, for questions or conversations around this. This is, it's an obsession. That's the best way I can put this is an obsession. And something that's needed, yeah. adding, adding the, the human yeah. element, the effective human element to business, I think is great. So, yeah. so Patrick, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.